Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you'd open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to hear the things you want us to hear, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in 2 Kings 5 this morning. Uh, We'll go through the chapter. This is a complete story on its own. This story takes place about 850 B.C., so this is during the Divided Kingdom era. It's before Israel, the northern tribes, go into captivity. That's about 700 B.C. So about 850 B.C., southern kingdom Judah does not affect this story this morning, only Israel. And then Israel's neighbor and enemy to the north, Aramea or Syria, with their capital in Damascus, plays an important role in this story as well. The story does not mention the name of either king, uh, uh, probably for a reason, but it's Ben-Hadad is the king of Syria at this time, and Joram or Jehoram is king of Israel. And this is the period in which Elisha, the prophet, is now at work in Israel. It's really one of the great Old Testament stories and uh, one that maybe we're not as familiar with as others. As we go through this story, you'll notice some very intentional contrast between power and weakness and pride and humility. So think about that as we go through. 2 Kings 5, 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. This is our introduction to the story. Here's this guy, Naaman. Look at, look at what describes him. He's the captain of the army of Aramea or Syria. He's a powerful man of a powerful army. He's highly valued and highly respected by his king. So he has great social standing. He personally is a valiant warrior. He's courageous. No small things. These are all, he's powerful, social standing, respected by the king, personally courageous, etc. And then this last thing is just like a kind of this anomaly, this appendage that doesn't fit anything else, and he's a leper. So he's got all these great things going for them, but he's also got this problem that he cannot do anything about. Now just imagine this. He's got all this social standing, but he's got a skin disease that makes him a social outcast. So other people would have to physically avoid him. And this would affect everything he did in his life. Uh, In this case, leprosy, we don't know if this is Hansen's disease, what we would call leprosy today, or if it's any of a number of other kinds of skin diseases. But if you had anything like this, you were avoided. No one wanted physical contact with you. So powerful guy, wealthy guy, important guy with a problem he can do nothing about. Verse 2 Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Now as I read this story, especially the first time through, and I read about the captive little girl from the land of Israel, uh, I'm feeling sorry for this little gal. I feel bad. I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, what did this look like? This band came in, it probably attacked part of northern Israel, 
and suddenly she's snatched from her family. So I'm thinking grieving parents, parents who now wonder where their daughter's at. Little girl, we don't know how old, but young. Certainly no, no older than a probably middle teenage, perhaps younger than that. I'm thinking hard life, hard times, questions, confusion, etc. It's interesting, though, as you read this story, that the story does not try and elicit any of those feelings from us. It just tells us the fact that she's a captive, this little Jewish girl, and that she waits on Naaman's wife. This one sentence, though, her, the, the only thing she says here makes me think of a couple things. Here's a little girl. She's adjusted to this new life. She didn't ask to be here. She probably doesn't want to be here. This is not what she would choose. But she's adjusted. And she's not only adjusted, but she actually expresses two things here that are somewhat remarkable. She's concerned about her master, Naaman. She, she expresses that to his wife. She's concerned about Naaman her captor, and she still has faith in the God of Israel and God's prophet. So she says, man, I wish he was with this prophet in Israel because I know God's man could heal him of this disease. So what an outstanding attitude. Nothing about feeling sorry, nothing about pity, nothing about the difficult circumstances she was in, which was real. This reminds me of Joseph in Egypt. You remember nothing fair about it, you know, sold by his jealous brothers in prison and, or in a slavery first, then in prison. Everything's unjust, and yet in each circumstance, he adjusts himself to the new circumstances, and he remains faithful to God. And in the end, God blesses. And that's what happens here. The little girl doesn't ask for pity. She's not throwing a temper tantrum. She's adjusted. She's changed her expectations, and she has genuine concern for her captor, and she has genuine faith in Israel's God. This is just like Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. You remember it wasn't too long ago we read that story? That Nebuchadnezzar is warned by God of what he's going to do to him if he doesn't turn from his pride. And Daniel pleads with him because Daniel genuinely is concerned for a guy that is in fact his captor. This is a great example. This is a good example I think for us too Uh, oftentimes we are in situations or circumstances that we would not choose. We're in them by someone else's doing, someone else's choice. We don't like it. We're uncomfortable, etc., etc., etc. This little Jewish girl is a great example that get over, get over the fact that we're not where we want to be, get over the fact that life's uncomfortable or life's unfair, maintain our faith in God and maintain that expression of concern for those around us. This little girl's presence in Syria, whether we say God caused it or he allowed it, she was God's messenger to the Gentile Naaman to communicate, in fact, in the end, the gospel. She was right where God wanted to use her, in this foreign land, captive and a slave. And, you know, if she was, certainly you and I, in the circumstances we find ourselves, should be able to cultivate that same attitude. Lord, I don't like the job I'm in. Or, Lord, I don't like the career I feel I'm stuck in. Or, I don't like any one of a number of things going on in my life. But, Lord, I'm going to remain faithful to you. And I want to be your witness to those folks around me. This was her attitude. That should certainly be our attitude. So here's this insignificant little girl, little girl, in a foreign land, who tells her master about a prophet in Israel. Well, verse 4, Naaman, 
went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. This guy's probably fairly desperate. And even though this is an insignificant little slave girl from a foreign land, he wants to be healed. And he takes this message straight to the king. So the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothes. The king of Aram, remember, he respects and he values Naaman. And so when Naaman comes and says, hey, I think there's a chance I could be healed, the king of Syria does everything he can. So he gives him a letter to the king of Israel, a letter of introduction, and he gives him an incredible fortune here to take down, to buy the favor of the prophet of Israel and be saved, be healed, be delivered. So the powerful king gives the power and the wealth he has to give to Naaman and sends him south. Verse 6, He brought the letter, Naaman did, to the king of Israel, saying, Now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? He's not speaking this to Naaman. He's speaking this to his servants, I'm sure. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. At this time, Syria and Israel are constantly at war. In fact, 1 Kings ends with Syria killing King Ahaziah in a war against Israel. And in the chapters that directly follow this up, some of those great stories about This same king that sends Naaman, Ben-Hadad, sends his army to go capture Elisha in the city of Dothan. And then after that, this is the same king and the same army that will come down and besiege Samaria that God will turn away miraculously. So King Joram knows that Assyria is always after him. So when he gets this letter, he's assuming this is an intentional provocation by the king of Syria just to have an excuse to come in and invade Israel. So he is terrified. So the powerful king of Syria sends a letter to the powerful, a little less powerful than him, but powerful king of Israel to heal his man of leprosy. And of course, the king of Israel has absolutely no power to help this guy either. Two kings with power and wealth can do nothing about Naaman's problem. Verse 8 It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now on Elisha's part, there's no fear whatsoever. You know, the king is trembling in his boots. Elisha says, Don't worry, you send him my way. This is not vanity or pride on Elisha's part. Elisha, when he says he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel... Prophets represent someone else. And Elisha knows whom he serves, and he knows the power of the God he serves. So he says to the king of Israel, Don't worry, send him, not, send him my way. Verse 9, So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Get a picture of this in your mind. I, I love this. Uh, this would be a great play or a great movie. Remember, Naaman's the captain of the army. He's a wealthy guy. He's got the wealth of Syria with him. He's got an entourage from the king of Syria with him. 
So this kingly, wealthy entourage, they've probably got the palace uniforms on, and they've got chariots and horses laden with all this wealth. This would, this would have been fancy, very fancy group. And this fancy kingly entourage comes down to Israel's king, where they think that's where the power is and that's where the healing is. And, of course, that king has to say, oh, I've I got to turn you away. I, I don't have anything for you. So this kingly entourage with all this wealth and fancy clothing and the horses and the chariots, they come down to the edge of town to probably this little house. Isn't this, this is funny. This is comical to me. This is like the kings of the east coming to the stable in Bethlehem. It's power and wealth coming to a humble, lowly place because the powerful place didn't have the power to do what was needed. But here on the edge of town, probably this, this unkingly, not a palace, maybe a little dump on the edge of town, here comes this kingly entourage, all this wealth, all this finery, and they come to Elisha's house. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Now Naaman's come down, he's come a long way from Damascus. And he's traveled a few miles and he's come to the king of Israel and now he's come down to this little house. The king of Israel received him. He comes to the prophet's house. The prophet doesn't even come out. He doesn't even look at him. He just sends his servant out. You remember in The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy and her friends go through all those terrible things and they finally get to the city, this great big massive city with these huge doors, and they're knocking on the door, and they're expecting these great gates to unfold and let let them in. You remember what happens? The little peephole opens, and the little door servant sticks his head out and says, Go away. That's what this would be like. He's come through hell and high water, and here's my salvation. And he gets to the door, and a servant comes out and says, Go wash in the, in the Jordan. Elisha doesn't even come and look at him. He sends his lowly servant out to give him the message. I love this uh, verse 11 and 12. Look at this. Naaman was furious. He went away and said, Behold, I thought, surely he'll come out to me. He'll stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. He'll wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So Naaman's been thinking about this for a while, and he's probably a religious man, and he knows what religious ceremonies look like. And the Syrians serve the God of thunder and storms. And so as he's been coming south, he's probably been thinking about, oh, this is what it'll be like. We'll get there to the palace, and God's man will come out. And he'll be dressed cool and he'll come out and there'll be this great performance. And maybe it'll thunder and lightning and the power from heaven will come down and there'll be this really impressive display and then I'll be healed. Gosh, what a letdown. And the little servant comes out and says, go wash in the river. <laughs> you see, the, he, this isn't it. This isn't what he expected. Where's the power? This isn't what I came for. What's going on? He is furious, and he's ticked, and he says, and by the way, if I wanted to wash, it wouldn't be in that dirty little river over there. The rivers we've got, the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, they're better than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. Not only is there no impressive religious ceremony, not only is the guy not out here whooping it up and doing a dance and calling the power of heaven down, 
But he's telling me to, to bathe in this dirty, muddy, mucky little river. If I wanted to get clean, it wouldn't be in that body of water. So he is ticked, and he's out of there. Enough's enough. Verse 13. Then his servant. We've got servants throughout this story, don't we? I think the servants might be a key here. Then his servants came, and they spoke to him, and they said, My father or my master, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, some difficult thing, would you not have done it? Naaman brings all this wealth. He's ready to do anything. How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Yes, you're ticked. Yes, you're disappointed. But you know that you would have done anything he said, no matter how hard, so that you could be healed. And he's told you to do something easy instead. Even though to you it's foolish, it's easy. So if you do the hard thing, why not do the little thing? Why not do the easy thing? God spoke through the servants. Verse 14, so he went down. He went down. He got down. He humbled himself. He went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. Now again, imagine. He's, he's probably thinking, oh man, what good is this going to do? But I'll do it anyway. It's stupid. It's dirty water. But I'll do it anyway. Now he said seven times. You remember when the Israelites circled Jericho? Six times on those six days, and the, the, the citizens were thinking, what in the world are they doing? Maybe they thought, what are we doing? But the seventh time on the seventh day, when they had done what they were told, the walls came down. He probably was no different those first six times, but the seventh time he dips and he comes back up. Dipped in the Jordan seven times according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So the powerful but helpless Naaman humbles himself. He comes down. He obeys the foolish, simple message. He bathes in the dirty, mucky river, and he's healed. Verse 15, when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. Luke 17 tells the story about the ten lepers that Jesus healed, and the only one that came and gave thanks was a Samaritan. He was like the Gentile. Naaman does exactly the same thing. He is thrilled and he's thankful and he comes to give thanks. Not only that, when he says, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, and as we'll see later, Naaman doesn't just get healed physically. Naaman gets saved. This Gentile comes to faith in the living God. He gets physically healed and he gets spiritually healed at the same time. So he not only gets the benefit he came down for, he gets something better. And he's ready to say thank you to Elisha with this grand kingly gift. But he, Elisha said, and it's interesting here, Elisha's out now. Naaman's done the foolish, humble thing, and now Elisha receives him. He's speaking to him face to face. But Elisha said... 
As the Lord lives before whom I stand, as the Lord lives whom I give account to, whom I must obey, I will take nothing. And he urged him, Naaman did, to take it, but he refused. Elisha will not accept anything. If this story is meant, as I believe it is, and as we'll talk about in a minute, salvation, if it's meant as a representative story of salvation, this component of the story is important because it tells Naaman the Gentile that your healing cannot be purchased. You have nothing you can give for your healing. It's free and it's a gift. It cannot be purchased. That's why this is important, I believe. Verse 17, Naaman gets even better. He says, okay, you won't take what I've brought you, the gifts I wanted to give you. Then let me take something else. Give me something else as well. If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He's come to faith in the living God, and yet he knows that when he goes back as a servant of the king, he'll be back in the house of Rimon, in this idol temple now that he knows is nothing. And he says... To Elisha, may God forgive me, may God pardon me when I go back, because now I understand that God's nothing. The God of Israel is. And so I want you to know that even when I'm in that temple of a foreign God, I know now he's nothing. But I'll be there with my king. May the Lord pardon it. And I love, Elisha just says, go in peace. Commentators try and develop lots of things out of this, but I think the bottom line is on the the testimony of the text itself is, here this guy has been physically healed. He's come to faith in the God of Israel, the living and true God. He's saved. And he says, you know, I I know there's going to be things in my life that aren't the way they ought to be. And God's man says, hey, go in peace. It's simple. He keeps the focus on salvation. You go in peace. And this guy says, when I offer incense, it'll be on the earth from Israel, so to speak, because I'm only worshiping the God of Israel, the living and true God. Now, our story could end right here. And this would be a great story, and it would be absolutely complete. Absolutely complete. But it doesn't. And that's because God has not communicated one of the key messages he's really after here. The story continues, unfortunately. Verse 20, But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean. I think he's looking down his nose when he says this about this Gentile. By not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, just like Elisha, speaking in God's name here, I will run after him and take something from him. I'm not going to let him get away. I'm not going to let him off this easy. He's going to pay. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, it's all well. Again, his humility. He's the high, the high guy here. But when he sees the servant coming, he gets down from his chariot onto his level. He's, he's actually, in fact, learned humility. 
He said, All is well, Gehazi says, but my master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. He's greedy. He's probably resentful. And now he's lying. Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him, and he bound two talents of silver in two bags, with two changes of clothes, and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, this is like the edge of town, he took them from their hand and deposited or hid them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. Greedy Gehazi, greedy Gehazi here, like Achan, during the time of Joshua, takes what God had forbidden. He's greedy, and he wants something that God had said you may not have, and he takes it anyway to his own trouble. He went in, verse 25, and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Parents know this. Sometimes parents ask children questions they already know the answer to. And they're giving their children the opportunity to tell the truth to confess, as it were. So kids, when your parents ask a question, it's always best to tell it straight. Don't fib, don't lie, don't equivocate, just tell the truth. That's the simple thing. Just tell the truth. Elisha already knows the answer, doesn't he? Gehazi says, well, your servant went nowhere. Oh, I haven't been any place. Just hanging out, just, just around the house. Verse 26, And he, Elisha, said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? He said, Gehazi, I saw you. I saw the whole thing. This is just like Jesus in John chapter 1. When Nathaniel comes up and he says, Hey, when you were there under the fig tree, I saw you. Elisha has that kind of sight, and he could see Gehazi. He saw everything that happened. Nothing was hidden from him. I saw you. I know what you did. Is it time to receive money and clothes? Now remember, Naaman gave him money and clothes. Is it time to receive money and clothes? Look at the rest of the list. My suspicion here is that Elisha knows what's going on in Gehazi's heart. He is given money and clothes from Naaman. But look what he's after. Olive groves vineyards, sheep, oxen, male and female servants. Gehazi looks at this wealthy Gentile and sees the opportunity to to move from Gehazi the servant to Gehazi the master, from the lowly servant to the wealthy master. He's imagining himself, I'm sure, just as Naaman had come down imagining what it'd be like, Gehazi has let his imagination go to and He sees himself as a landowner and a ruler. He'll have servants. He'll have vineyards and land and wealth. Out of his greed, Elisha has said, Is it time? Meaning it is not time. This is not God's will. What you're after, what your greed has led you to do and to pursue is not God's will. You've tried to take what God forbid. Therefore, verse 27, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. Wow. 
Naaman comes down and loses a disease that no one else could cure him of. Gehazi gets it. Naaman, who humbled himself, got healed. And Gehazi, who elevated himself in pride, he gets the disease. He placed his desires above God's will. More than that, probably, again, related to this story, he perverted the message that God intended to leave with Naaman, which was, none of his wealth mattered to God. His deliverance and his healing could not be purchased. They could only be received. His healing was a free gift. And when Gehazi, because of his greed, went and took the wealth he perverted the message God intended Naaman to understand clearly. I don't care about your wealth. Nothing you have can purchase the healing I'm giving you freely. So instead of ending on a high note, Naaman and his transformation, his healing and his salvation, the story actually ends on a low note, a warning, Gehazi, a leper, and his descendants, lepers, because of his greed. This sounds quite a bit to me like the story in Luke 16 about the prodigal son. Remember? The prodigal son. It's a great story. The story of the prodigal son, though, is a great story that leads to a warning at the end of the chapter. Jesus tells a great story to get to the end, to warn the Pharisees that they were like an older brother who though he was with his father physically was far, far removed, just as far as the, as the prodigal had been physically, the older brother is spiritually. This is the same kind of story. I love the first half of this story, but the first half sets up the warning at the end. That's the climax, the warning. There's at least three lessons that I get out of this. And this is, this is a great story. I read this in my quiet time two or three months ago and thought, man, I want to teach on this. It's so encouraging. Let's look at a few things I come away with thinking. The first, looked at in a couple different ways, is God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's Naaman the proud Syrian. He was proud and he's angry and he's ticked, but he humbles himself. And because he humbles himself, God helps him and heals him. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Gehazi, the humble servant, elevates himself in pride, and God curses him. God's opposed to the proud. God, this is stated throughout the Old and New Testaments, clearly, because pride is a root of all kinds of sin. Pride is a root of many, many sins. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The second thing along that same line is God works through the lowly or the weak to display his power and accomplish his will. This is straight out of 2 Corinthians 4 and 12 that we looked at before, I think just a week ago. God works through the weak because he wants everyone to know the power is his. So if you see, remember in the story, powerful king of Syria can't help. Powerful king of Israel can't help. Naaman's own power and wealth can't help. But who are the key figures? The little Jewish girl. That's where the story starts. She says, by the way, there's a God in Israel and his prophet that can help you. The servant of Elisha is the one that gives the message of of, uh, healing. Naaman's servant is the one that comes and reminds him, hey, if you do the hard thing, do the easy thing. 
In other words, the power pivots on the lowly and the weak in this story. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. God is pleased to use the weak things and the weak people of this world to display his strength. That's the first thing. The second thing is the gospel. This is such a great, great illustration of the gospel message. We are all like Naaman the Syrian. No matter how impressive you or I may be or not be, We've got a problem. We've got leprosy. We've got a skin disease that, that just is like a canker in every area of our life. We've got sin. We've got a sin issue. It's an issue that you and I have no power and no ability to affect. It doesn't matter how important you are, how smart you are, your social standing. None of it matters. You and I have a problem called sin that we can do nothing about. We're helpless. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Just like Naaman, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, just like Naaman, called uncircumcision by the circumcision, that is the Jews, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was our status. That is everyone's status before God, without God, without hope. That's sin. We're all Naamans and we're all unclean. The second thing is that wealth and power can't help us and there's no way to purchase what we need. Salvation is a gift. It's free. Listen to Psalm 49. Why should I fear in the days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? My foes are those who trust in their wealth. They boast in the abundance of their riches. But no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. You know what? You and I cannot only heal ourselves. We cannot heal ourselves. You can't heal anyone else. No matter how much wealth you have, the cost of our soul is so high that no person can ever pay it. Not for yourself and not for anyone else. Redemption cannot be purchased. Listen to Ephesians 2 again. Paul says, It's by grace that you've been saved, through faith, not of yourselves. Nothing you worked up, nothing you you could provide for, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast, not as a result of wealth or intellect or accomplishment. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ like that nasty, muddy, dirty Jordan, it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us of sin. It's not a nice message. It's not a clean message. It's not a sanitary message. It's bloody. And the third thing is that healing, spiritual healing, requires humble obedience to a foolish message. You know, many of us want to come to God on our terms. We're like Naaman. We're ready to turn away ticked. Just believe and be saved right We don't want to accept that humble message, that foolish message. But listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians. The word of the cross, that's the gospel, is to those who are perishing foolishness. 
just like Naaman, washing that dirty river. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. He says at verse 22, Indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Greeks or to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the gospel is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Just like Naaman, this foolish message is what God uses to save us. And it's when we humble ourselves and say yes to God's provision, His way, this foolish message, we're saved. With Naaman, we go down in the water and we come up clean. We lower ourselves from our pride. We humble ourselves and we trust and we believe and we're cleansed. The third message I get out of this because of the warning at the end is be very careful. Be very careful in how you represent God and what you communicate to others about the gospel. Listen to Revelation 22. This is the end of the Bible, and it is the last appeal in the Bible to be saved. Revelation 22, verse 17, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come, spiritually thirsty. Christ says, come. One last time, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Here's the whole message of the Bible wrapping up. Here's the whole message of the future wrapping up. And Jesus says, one last time, if you're spiritually thirsty, you come. You drink free. Last invitation The water of life, it's free, it's available. Here it is, take it. But listen to what he follows that up with, verses 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. We won't try and plumb the theological depths here of this last verse, but this is clear. If you mess with God's message, you mess with Him. He does not take it lightly. If you tamper with the gospel, you oppose God like Gehazi, and you do it at your own peril. And if you're a believer going to heaven and you're distorting the gospel to those around you, or if you're a deceiver going to hell, and you're distorting the gospel to those around you, you do it at your own peril. It is a dangerous thing to tamper with the gospel, just as Gehazi found out. In Galatians 1, Jews in Galatia were saying that salvation by faith wasn't enough. You had to get circumcised. And Paul says, may you be cursed, you who are distorting the message of the gospel. You who are adding to the message of the gospel, you're cursed. He says later, you've fallen from grace. He says later, those people that want to see you circumcised, may they be mutilated. 
you know, we read the story and we see what Gehazi does. And on one hand, we say, well, he's a stinker, he's greedy, etc. You and I probably wouldn't say, though, you're cursed forever with leprosy and so are your descendants. But that's the only thing God speaks to him through Elisha. You're cursed because you've distorted the message God intended Naaman to have. And here at the end of the Bible, along with the last appeal to receive the gospel of grace freely, are these warnings. Do not take away from what God has said and do not add to what God has said. We tamper with the gospel at our peril, whoever we are, wherever we're heading. So what a great story, though. Power can't help, money can't save, but humble submission to a foolish message heals. And Naaman the proud Syrian becomes Naaman the believer. Gehazi, on the other hand, Gehazi who exalts himself in pride and greed, receives the curse that Naaman was cleansed of. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that salvation is a gift and that, Lord, just like Naaman, I love his response. He not only humbly receives the message and humbly submits, but, Lord, having believed and been saved, he says, and by the way, I'd like one more thing. He comes to you for more. I think of the psalm, Lord, that says, What can we do for the Lord except take the cup of salvation and call on your name? Father, thanks that salvation required a cost we could never pay. You met it for us in the person of Jesus, that he did what we could not do, Lord. He covered our sins. You've removed them as far as the east is from the west. You've saved us, Lord, by grace, by favor we didn't earn, but by the provision of your Son himself. Thank you that salvation is free. And Father, as we communicate the message of the gospel, help us to articulate it clearly and as you have laid it out. It's a gift that we receive by trusting in your Son, and in his provision, no more and no less. Father, if there's anyone here today who's not clear with you on this, help them with Naaman to humble themselves, to accept a foolish message, to trust in Christ for salvation, in the blood of Christ to cover their sins. Thanks for saving us, Lord. Help us to be like the weak, lowly servants in this story so that deliverance and salvation and healing and rebirth can come into the lives of those around us. Help us to be like the weak Jewish girl in a far place that she probably didn't like but who was faithful to you to give a message of hope and salvation to the ones around her. In Jesus' name, amen.